Thank you, Pastor Bradford, for having me here. I'm really honored to be here. Praise God. And uh, I was, as Pastor said, I was born a Muslim, and I got saved at the age of 21 years. I had never seen a Bible, never met a Christian in my life, but I met somebody on the street who told me about Jesus, and I instantly felt that this is what I've been waiting for all my life, and uh, I got saved, and uh, anyway, God called me to preach the gospel. Three days later, I heard an audible voice, and the Lord called me to preach the gospel, so I began to preach the gospel. I was soon arrested and put in prison for almost a year. I was tortured, then when I came out of prison, they wanted to kill me if I didn't go back to Islam, so I had to escape, and I was in Afghanistan, I was in Russia, I was in uh, Belgium, Holland, Turkey. Then I ended up in Sweden, and when I was in Sweden, the pastor uh, who, had, who had baptized me, he was an American missionary, he was killed. And so uh, I was advised that I should apply for political asylum in Sweden, so I got political asylum there, was a refugee, got married, and uh, lived in Sweden for almost 20 years, and then we moved to the U.S. 28 years ago, where we now live in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and I'm with the Pendel District, the best district in the country, of course, so, <laughs> amen. And my former district superintendent, Pastor Tourville, is here, uh, a wonderful, awesome man of God. So, anyway, so, I'm really, really honored to be here, Pastor. Praise God. Now, about my books, I've got that one book is, uh, is called Out of Islam. It's about my life story. And the other one is All Things Are Possible. It's about miracles. And the third one is Radical Prosperity. So, uh, you know, I'm mentioning this, as Pastor said, you know, our policy, pricing policy is pray and obey. Take what you like and just take five seconds and ask the Lord what he would have you give for what you have taken. And whatever God tells you, I'm good with. Now, there's a couple of caveats. If you stand there and say, well, I'm asking the Lord, but I'm not, you know, getting any clear signal. You can find me in the building. I can ask the Lord for you. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty good at that, you know, so I'm good at that. I'm professional, so I do that for a living. So I will tell you, right? Now, if you feel like you should take 20 books and give a dime, that ain't the Lord, but anyway. So... If you hear two figures in your head, the lower one is the devil. But anyway, so anyway, I want to, uh, sorry, I had to get that. The first service, everyone was so quiet, you know, so I, I you know, look, I, I preach in Africa and Asia. I like a little bit of noise, you know, when I get some feedback from people, you know, someone says hallelujah, shouts, or even runs around the building, jumping the pews. I have, I just want to see signs of life when I'm, preaching. I'm just, I'm Pentecostal, amen. I'm fully Pentecostal. And, um, you know, in Sweden, I don't know what it's today, but back in the day, oh my goodness, our meetings used to be noisy. And, uh, you know, Swedish, uh, Swedes are very stoic people, but not in the Pentecostal church. There they were noisy. So I kind of feel at home uh, when there's a little bit of noise. Now, I want to show you a picture of what I do for a living, my day job. I uh, okay, you can put the first picture up. Now, uh, I normally do uh, 12 gospel crusades a year, eight in Africa and uh, 
uh, four in, in Asia. I used to do 10 crusades in Africa every year. Then my wife began to say, you're not getting any younger, you travel so much, you should cut down. So I cut down to nine, and then she said, no, you should cut down more. I said, okay, I cut down to eight, and then God opened the door in Asia, I started doing four crusades there. So I cut down from 10 to 12 crusades. And uh, so we see anywhere, but you know, the only true bookkeeping of souls is in heaven, but we see anywhere, can be anywhere between 800,000 to 1.2 million people saved every year. And uh, so this is, uh, anyway, I'm gonna show you some pictures, uh, not from Africa, but from Asia. As you can see, this is the final altar call in, uh, one, in one of the places. And the next one, this is, uh, you know, another place we were in. Now, you've got to understand that first picture, the speaker of their parliament is a believer. He was sitting next to me. He said, Pastor, only 1% of these people are Christians. It's a very unreached area, and we are starting a church planting school and are going to plant churches in that region because the needs are so great. Anyway, so the next one, this is another crusade, and the next one, here's another crusade. So you can see a lot of people come to hear the gospel. And the next picture is my team who I work together with, and uh, the guy on the right is, uh, is with the Oklahoma district, and he is actually uh, an American, but he's married to a local girl, so he's lived there for many years. Okay, the next picture is this a boy, it's just a few, few miracles I'll show you. He was a boy who was born deaf and mute, began to hear and to speak. Next one, a girl about 12, 13 years old, born deaf and mute, began to hear and to speak. And, and the next one, is this, now this girl, you can see here, she had kidney failure, both her kidneys shut down and her limbs were swollen and she was almost completely blind and she was in the crowd and Jesus healed her. And uh, you, you know, it's very interesting. The greatest miracles I see are when people are in the crowd, when I don't know them, because if they stand in front of me, I know their condition, my mind gets in the way. My mind really messes with me, it affects my faith. But the greatest, greatest things happen when I don't know they're there and I hear afterwards because then it's only Jesus, you know. Uh, Jesus comes through. So it's, I don't know, you're like that, but my mind always get, gets in the way. Anyway, the next one is, uh, this is a, a child born paralyzed walking for the first time in her life when Jesus touched her. And the next one is, uh, this is, the, okay, she was lame, blind, unresponsive, uh, immovable, she was like a vegetable. She was carried in a car and uh, she was, in, and suddenly I saw the car on the side and suddenly the door of the car opened and this woman came out straight to the platform and began to share what the Lord had done with her. And she could see, she could speak, she was perfectly okay walking around. Uh, this was a, a wonderful, wonderful miracle. And the next picture is uh, this man his mind, it's a kind of demon possession. I've seen this only thrice in my life. His mind was completely erased. He didn't know his own name, didn't recognize his family, couldn't speak, couldn't understand, and God healed him, delivered him completely. He was set free, so. And the next one is, uh, this is a, a, a blind woman received a sight. But the reason I put this picture up is if you see the gentleman on the left, he's a Roman Catholic priest. And the Catholics are really helping me. And they say, Pastor, we know you're Pentecostal, you plant your Pentecostal churches, we Catholics will help you. So the first time I did a crusade, we were in a town, there were no Christians there. 
And so a Catholic priest came. He said, Pastor, I'm Roman Catholic. I'm a priest and I pray. And I was praying and the Lord sent me here. So he drove two hours to ask me, is there anything I needed? I said, I need people to, you know, just for crowd control. So the next day he showed up with two busloads of young people. And so they came and, you know, we told them where to stand, what to do. And when God began to do miracles, we hadn't counted on that. They went on their knees, pulled out their rosaries and began to do the Hail Marys. They were so scared. I mean, they didn't know what was going on. They, they, they were frightened. So we calmed them down. And then I, then I realized these people were not born again. So, uh, you know, we shared the gospel with them. They got born again. And on the last night, they all got baptized with the Holy Spirit, which was good, you know. So anyway, this was the last picture. And you know, yeah, talking about that, last Sunday I was in Zambia and uh, I was in a place called Chipata compound in Zambia and we saw 20,000 baptized with the Holy Ghost in one service. And uh, the Sunday before that, I was in the town of George, same thing, 20,000 baptized with the Holy Spirit. And you know, when that happens, when that number of people, when the Holy Ghost hits the crowd, it's, you can actually feel it. It's like a shock wave goes through your body. It's indescribable what happens when the, the Holy Ghost just sweeps over the place and in an instant all these people just break out into shouting in other tongues and people are weeping, falling and crying, speaking in tongues and it's, it's just a glorious. The Pentecostal experience is always glorious and we must promote it, we must preach it, we must push it. People must be baptized with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Not with ashes, but with fire. Amen. Ashes are cold, but fire is hot. Amen. The Pentecostal experience should always be red hot. Because if we have a red hot Pentecostal experience, we will preach a red hot gospel. And if we preach a red hot gospel, people will have a red hot salvation experience. And they will be on fire for the rest of their lives. Amen. That is the kind of disciples we want to produce. Amen. Thank you for your enthusiasm, all three of you. But uh, let's go straight to the Word of God, John chapter 1. Let's go to John chapter 1. And uh, okay, in John chapter 1, Pastor, at what time should I finish? Huh? Okay, 5 to 12, okay. John, you know, I'm Pentecostal. It takes me 45 minutes just to get warmed up, so... But I always honor the time, you know, I'll, I'll do that, Pastor. So, John chapter 1, let's go to verse number 4. These are the last words that Jesus spoke on this earth. Um, and I'm, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 1, I got it wrong. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 4, the last words of Jesus, and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, you have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And when he had spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up and a, crowd, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Amen. So we know that these were 
the last words of Jesus and that's why they were very significant. These were the last thing, his last things he spoke on this earth. Now let's go to uh, verse 4. It says, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them. This is important because this is the last command that Jesus gave to his disciples on this earth. And the commandment was that they should not leave Jerusalem, but they should be wait, they should wait for the promise of the Father. In other words, to be baptized with the Holy Spirit is not offered to us as an option or, a, you know, or, 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 or an extra, but it is a direct commandment of Jesus. So to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and speak with other tongues is a direct commandment of the Lord Jesus and every believer should seek it unless, until he receives it. Amen. And after that, we should speak in tongues every single day. It should be part of our life, praying in the, in the spirit, okay? So anyway, so when he said that, he said that he gave them this command, you shouldn't go anywhere, but you should be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Look at their response. In verse 6, they said, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? You know, when I read this, I, uh, I couldn't understand their frame of reference. Where were they coming from? What does... Uh, Pentecost, you know, baptism of the Holy Spirit have to do with the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. And I didn't understand this until a few, year, few years ago when I began to study some history. And that's when I realized, I found this out, that when Jesus came into the scene, the, the Israelites uh, had been under foreign occupation for almost four centuries, for a little bit less than 400 years they, uh, you know, they had lost their kingdom and they had lived under foreign occupation. Now, the people of Israel, they were a very proud people. They knew of their special, you know, place in history. They knew that God had a covenant with them and only with them. Uh, they were God's covenant people and the law and the prophets were given to Israel and um, that the Lord was always with them and he had blessed them and all that. They had all the promises. They had the word of God. They had their own kingdom, their own kings. But now for 400 years, they haven't had their kings. They hadn't had their kingdoms. And they longed for their kingdom back. And they were first occupied by the Babylonians, then by the Seleucid Greeks. And after the Greeks came the Romans and the Romans, you know, and all these uh, occupiers were very brutal. And uh, then during these 400 years of occupation, there had been, if you study history, you'll see there were many, many uprisings against these occupying powers. But all those uprisings had been crushed, except for one man. He had some limited success. His name was uh, Judas Maccabeus. And if you go to Israel, he's a, uh, you know, he's a very revered figure. He's like a folk hero in Israel. His name is honored and respected even today because he was the only one who had some success in that he managed to carve out a, a small chunk of territory where he established a Jewish kingdom called the Hasmonean Kingdom, which I think lasted for about 70 years, but then the Romans came and destroyed that also. So during these 400 years of occupation, the Jews had developed this mentality that they, began, they would view uh, or interpret the scriptures through the prism of their uh, circumstances, their national circumstances and aspirations as a nation. So, they, so all the messianic scriptures, all the scriptures that pointed to the Messiah, in their mind the, the Messiah would be a military figure 
who would come and lead them in battle against their occupiers and, uh, and you know, throw their occupiers out, defeat them at war and establish, uh, you know, the Jewish kingdom again, the kingdom of David and all that. So that was their mindset. So into this scene came Jesus and Jesus was unique. There were two very unique things about him. The first thing was that the Bible says that no man ever spoke like him. His words uh, gripped people's hearts, captive people's hearts were gripped by his words. The other thing was that he had miracles. I mean, the lame people walked, dead people were raised up. Amazing things happened that nobody else uh, ever, you know, it didn't happen with anyone else, only with him. So he developed a following. So there were these people who followed him around, quite a large group of people. And many of them really looked at him as a potential deliverer, you know, who would throw the Romans out. And, and that's why there was even a group, uh, you know, there were many streams in Jewish society those days. And one of those groups was the zealots. The zealots were the ones who wanted to take up arms against the Romans. They were the insurgents. And one of them even became a disciple of Jesus. You read about Simon the zealot. So you had these zealots following him around. And if you remember when uh, the, f the feeding of the 5,000 took place, they wanted to make him their king by force. And they said, you will be our king. He said, I'm not interested being, in being your king. They said, no, you don't know it, but we know it. You are our man. But he refused. Not only that, but during his three and a half years of ministry, he never made a single political statement against Rome or the Romans or never addressed their oppression or how they had conducted themselves. On the contrary, he talked about heaven. He talked about uh, his father in heaven, talked about the kingdom of God, about the kingdom of heaven. And he totally seemed to neglect of, you know, what was happening around him. And in, I think in the eyes of many people, he seemed to be totally oblivious of what was going on around him. And you can imagine their frustration. And he was the only likely candidate to be the one to lead them. And in the middle of all this, Jesus, he goes and dies on the cross. And when he dies, their dreams die with him. But on the third day, he makes the ultimate comeback. I mean, you read about comebacks, but never has anyone made a comeback like Jesus. Jesus rises from the dead, and when he rises from the dead, their, their dreams are also resurrected with him, and they begin to follow him around. And the Bible says for 40 days, he talked to them about the kingdom of God. And now the last day comes and he says, okay, guys, come together. Let me tell you something. And he said, don't go anywhere, but stay in Jerusalem until you receive that which the Father has promised, uh, which I have talked to you about. Because John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And that's when they thought, now he's getting it. So, oh, is that when you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he dashed their hopes to the ground for the last time. And he said, you know what? He says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father himself has decided, but he says, the Holy Ghost is going to come. The Holy Ghost is going to come. Now, you've got to understand, those disciples didn't understand because they were looking at the future, but we are looking at the past, and we, uh, you know, we're looking in hindsight, but, but you see, the thing is that... The, the kingdom, that kingdom of Israel, if Jesus had restored the kingdom of Israel, he could. But the kingdom of Israel was only for the Jewish people. 
And Jesus said, salvation is for the Jews. Arabs like me and folks like you, whatever your ancestry is, you would be left out. Didn't matter how many shofars you blew. There was no hope for you and me. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's no, there's, we were without hope. We were far from God. But Jesus had something else in mind. That was God's salvation plan for all nations. And the Bible says, we who were far have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Hallelujah. So, but they couldn't see it. They just wanted their little kingdom back. But God had something bigger in mind. That was his salvation plan for all mankind. Where all mankind would be redeemed from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. But of course they couldn't see that. But anyway, he says, now the Holy Ghost is going to come. And the Holy Ghost was the key to all that happening. The Holy Ghost is going to come. Now, the Holy Ghost, here's the thing. Why the Holy Ghost? Well, simple. The Father is in heaven. Jesus was here, but he went back to the Father. He's at the right hand of the Father. But the Holy Ghost is the one who's here. So everything that the Father and the Son say or do in your life, in my life, or in the church, or on the earth, they do so through the Holy Spirit. That is why our personal relationship with the Holy Spirit is of utmost importance. We cannot neglect him. We cannot sideline him and let him sit in the next room. Okay, if you want prayer for the sick, we'll do it on Wednesday in that little classroom 3A. The Holy Ghost has to be front and center. We need to speak in tongues and shout and, you know, give room to the gifts and the power of the Holy Spirit because he wants to be front and center of all things because Jesus said, is the Holy Ghost, when he comes, he shall glorify me because he shall take that which is of mine and make it known to you. So the Holy Ghost is the key to everything. That's why Jesus says, when the Holy Ghost shall come upon you, not only that the Holy Ghost shall come, but he wants to come upon each one of us individually. So each one of us, as we are sitting here, we should ask ourselves, how deep is my surrender to the Holy Spirit? Or what is the level of my personal surrender to the Holy Spirit? Is my experience of the Holy Spirit just a, a shallow surface experience that I got the ability to speak in tongues so I show up in church on Sunday morning and I go, Oh, I got the Holy Ghost. You got nothing. There's far more to the Holy Ghost. Then just that. So, and it's not a question of how much of the Holy Spirit you and I have, but it's how much of us does the Holy Spirit have. So I always ask myself, how much of me does the Holy Spirit possess? How much of me does the Holy Spirit possess? Because my effectiveness, my success, for my success or my fruitfulness in this life depends upon how much of me the Holy Spirit has a hold of. So he says, when the Holy Spirit shall come upon you, what's going to happen? The first thing, you shall receive power. And that word power, that word dynamis is God's ability, God's brute force. You shall receive power. 
you shall receive dunamis. And, and it's not a coincidence that same word is used in Mark chapter 5 when the woman with the issue of blood came up from behind and she touched Jesus and that divine substance that flowed from his garment and into her body and healed her. And he said, somebody touch me because I felt dunamis flow from me. So what Jesus was saying is that, boys, do you remember that divine substance that flowed from my garment when that woman came and touched me and it healed her? Well, that same thing shall flow from you when the Holy Ghost comes upon you. The same thing that flowed from me shall flow through you. Hallelujah. That is the promise. Now, I tell you the reason why we don't see it in action. Do you want to know? The reason is our expectation does not rise to the level of God's promises. We should have this attitude, if God has said it in his word, it is so. Amen. If God has said it so in his word, it is so. It's just the way it is. God has said it in his word. That decides it. Because God doesn't lie. He doesn't make stuff up. He means what he says and he says what he means. We have to take the word of God literally. Amen. And this is what he said. When the Holy Ghost shall come upon you, you shall receive dynamis. Same thing that flowed from me shall flow through you. And then it tells us why. And it's not so I can have a healing ministry. So that I can be his witness. The word witness here means somebody who can give evidence in court. Somebody, you know, I remember I once witnessed a, a crime and I happened to be there. The police took my name and address and I was taken to court. And the first question, did you see what happened? Did you experience it? I couldn't say I read about it in the newspaper. I'm not a witness. See, I have seen that Jesus is alive. You know why? First of all, I know what he has done in my life. That's the first thing. The second thing, because of the miracles I have seen, I know, I know that only Jesus can do those miracles. I was a Muslim for 21 years. Muhammad could not do those miracles. No ways. You know why? Because he's dead. If you go to Mecca and you drive, I think, 30 kilometers from Mecca, you go to Medina, his grave is there. My parents, all my relatives have visited the grave of Muhammad and they'll tell you he is actually buried there. Because every day since he died 1400 years ago, people have visited the grave and pray at the grave and he's there. But I have been to the grave of Jesus and I walked in there, there was nobody there, but there was a sign that says he is not here because he is risen. And I'm a witness of the fact that Jesus Christ is not dead, but he is alive. And how do I give that evidence when, when the lame people walk, when the blind eyes are open and the deaf hear and the dumb speak, when the dead are raised up? That is irrefutable proof that Jesus Christ, this Jesus, is not a figment of somebody's evidence of imagination, but he is alive today. So let us start talking, preaching acting as if we serve a living Jesus and not a dead Jesus. Amen. We are called to be witnesses, proof producers, evidence givers of the fact that 
Jesus is alive. You see, it's not about us, it's about him. He's alive. Then it tells us where we shall give witness. First of all, he said in Jerusalem, that's your home turf, Springfield. Judea, that's the greater geographical territory where the Jewish people lived. And then Samaria, now Samaria, that's the enemy. They have another religion. They worship on that mountain. They worship in Jerusalem. The woman, Samaritan woman came to, said to Jesus, why are you even talking to me? We have no dealings with each other. Who are the Samaritans for us? You want to know? If you listen to talk show radio hosts, it's the Muslims. Huh? And unfortunately, many Christians listen to the talk show radio hosts and they develop this mindset, oh, these people are dangerous to America. They're here to kill us all, destroy us, and we have created this atmosphere. But if you read the Bible, the Bible tells us a different story. The Bible tells us these are people who Jesus loves and he died for them. Amen. Amen. And you know what? How can I prove that? I'm right here. I'm one of them. When I was 17, I went to jihad. I fought in a war when I was 17. I went in a holy war, believing if I died, I'd go to heaven and all that stuff. I believed that. But somebody, an Englishman called Keith Frampton, the son of KP and Pauline Frampton, who were the wealthiest Christians in Great Britain in the 60s and the 70s, great Christian philanthropists, their son went all over the world preaching the gospel, handing out tracts on the street, and he met me of all people and gave me a tract and prayed with me and led me to Jesus Christ, and here I am today preaching the gospel. Amen. So I was one of those people who your talk show radio host would say is the enemy. But I'm no longer an enemy. I'm now a child of God because of the gospel. And the gospel is our greatest weapon. Hallelujah. It's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. The gospel is our greatest weapon. Amen. If you love America, you're going to preach the gospel to America. Praise God. To Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. Far away places. Amen. You know, I've, I've been to the uttermost parts of the earth. The first time I ever went to the uttermost parts of the earth was in a place called Irian Jaya. And we were flying there. The pastor said to me, he says, Brother Christopher, these people, you know, don't be shocked, but they don't wear clothes. They walk around naked in the jungle. I said, you're kidding. He says, don't be shocked. Then he said, they're cannibals. Cannibals, and you're taking me there. He said, no, no, but you're not in danger. They like to eat white people. <laughs> white people. So I said, white people, the other white meat. So I said, I'm a brown guy. I'm safe. And so, we, you know, I landed at that little airstrip, and we landed there, and a guy walks in. I couldn't believe it. He was stark naked, wearing nothing except Ray-Ban sunglasses. <laughs> New York Yankees baseball cap. It says NY, blue cap, and holding a Diet Coke in his hand. And I said to the pastor, I said, can you see this? American culture has reached this place before the gospel. 
That's why he said to the uttermost parts of the earth, they must hear the gospel. Well, let me finish by telling a story. Many, many years ago, I think it was 1996, 97, I went to Burma, which is now known as Myanmar. Burma had a time of democracy. Now they're under dictatorship again, but that time it was even worse. They had a, hadn't had any, they have had military dictatorship since 1960, and the military was very brutal. So I went there and did some meetings. I had many people saved and healed, and, and immediately after I left, the army came and arrested all the pastors, and, and it was bad. It was a bad, bad situation. So they wrote to me, they said, Pastor, please come back, but please wait wait a year until things calm down. So a year later I was back, and first one of the services I was praying, I was actually, the presence of God was strong, so I was prostrate on the floor, and suddenly I saw an open vision. In fact, I saw three open visions in five days, and these visions were long visions, you know, I was in another world, I couldn't see the reality, what was happening around me, I was just my reality what was what I was seeing in the vision. And I'd never seen open visions before, but it was three long open visions. And the Lord began to deal with things in my own personal life that needed to be dealt with. Uh, you know, he, a lot of it was about my life. But then the Lord said to me, I want you to come back to Burma and holding open air crusades and planting churches. I said, Lord, that's a great idea, but could you find somebody else? Because, and the Lord said, why? I said, you know, they here they torture people, they kill people, and I enjoy my life. I have a wife and kids. I live in America. I am living a good life. And there are others who are gluttons for punishment. I mean, they write books about their sufferings, about in, in juicy detail about everything they've been through. Why don't you ask them to come so they can write another book, not me? And the Lord said, do you remember what you said to me in the summer of 1977? I said, do you really have to bring that up? Now, what happened was this. I got saved in 75. And 76, I spent in prison for preaching the gospel. 77, I was a refugee. I was in Belgium. And uh, I was in an organization called Operation Mobilization. I don't know if you have heard of them. So I was with Operation Mobilization. And our leader was a man called George Verver, he was an absolute fanatic. He is over 86 years old now and he's worse than before. I mean, he preaches, he's so radical about preaching the gospel, reaching the lost and he, I mean, he was really, he was telling us, don't live a life of comfort, lay down your life to preach the gospel. And, and I was, I was, I was so fired up because I liked his kind of language. And then he gave me a book called The Calvary Road about living the crucified life. So there were 7,000 people, there were somehow I got to know him. So I read The Calvary Road and I was weeping and God really, talk to me about through that book. And then he gave me another book. He said, read this book. I looked at the title and the title scared me. It was called Come, Live and Die. And by the time I, was, I finished Come, Live and Die, I said to God, I said, God, I'm ready to die. I said, send me somewhere where I can preach the gospel and get killed, you know, where I'm ready to die because I was single, I was alone. I didn't care what happened to me. Send me somewhere where I can die preaching the gospel. So 
one day he gave some kind of altar call. He said, okay, all those of you who really, really are serious about laying down your life for Jesus to preach the gospel to the lost, just come to the front. And I, stupid as I was, I jumped to my feet, I ran to the front, went on my knees, and I spoke words that I have regretted. I remember tears were flowing down my cheeks and I said, Lord, send me somewhere where I can die preaching the gospel. And I said, if you don't want to use me, kill me right now, right here. Anyway, it felt good to say that. And then a couple of months later, I was in Sweden and I met this beautiful girl. We got married. We have been married 43 years. We have three kids and, you know, settled down and I got Baptized with the Holy Spirit. I was preaching the gospel. Good. Everything's going good in the ministry and all that. All these years have passed and I'm in Burma. And now the Lord says, do you remember what you said in the summer of 77? I said, yes, I did. But you know, Lord, you know this, that when people are young, they say stupid things, you know, which they regret later on. This is one of my stupid moments. And the Lord said, yeah. But the Lord said, you always teach, when you teach and preach, you tell people to take my words literally. Why can't I take your words literally? I said, okay, fine, you win. I'm coming to Burma. I felt like when Thomas said, when Jesus was going to raise up Lazarus, he said, okay, come, let us all go die with him, you know. So I said, okay. Uh, I said, okay, I will come. But there's a caveat. I said, I will only go if the Holy Ghost goes with me. And the Lord said, okay. I said, because you promised the Holy Ghost will go with me, but not the Holy Ghost of the churches back home in America where people come and they line up and you give them a little nudge, then they do a courtesy fall, you know. I said, not that Holy Ghost. That Holy Ghost won't work here in Burma. I mean, I want the book of Acts Holy Ghost. And the Lord said, okay, fine. So I'm doing my first crusade in Burma. Uh, a year later, I'm back and... I'm preaching and all the altar call, all these people want to be saved. And somehow the ushers put all the sick on the left-hand side. And they're bringing them past me and I'm praying for them. And out of the corner of my eye, I see a man, he's wearing striped hospital pajamas. He looks, I mean, he looks like a living skeleton. He's like a skeleton with skin on him. And three people are propping him up. Two people are holding IV bottles with tubes running into his arms, and he looked like he was dead. In fact, he, they had brought him from the hospital. And as I was watching him, the guy just slid to the floor and lay on his back with his mouth and his eyes wide open, and somebody shouted something. There was a group of doctors and nurses. They jumped, ran to him, began to work on him. Then one of the doctors, at that time, very few people spoke English. This doctor, he turns to me and he shouts. He said, Pastor, he's dead. I said, well, if he's dead, do something about it. They said, we have done everything, he's dead. I thought, oh my goodness, nobody should die in a Pentecostal meeting. What do I do? I've never had a person die in my meeting. So I thought, okay, I'll pray for the sick here and they'll kind of forget the body and, you know, meeting will be over and that kind of thing. But one of the ushers, I mean, a fool, you know what he did? He went to the dead body, he grabbed it by the wrists and dragged the body on the floor and put him right in front of me. Now I have to do something I can't get out of it. And I'm thinking, what do I do? Because they didn't teach me anything about this in Bible school. 
I learned to pray for the sick, I learned to cast out demons, I can do a wedding, I can do a baptism, I can do a funeral, but I don't know what to do. I know folk, you graduated from CBC, maybe they taught you something there, I don't know, but Bible school I went to, they didn't teach me anything of that sort. And I was, I didn't know what to do. And then suddenly I see the face of Pastor Harold Groves. Pastor Harold Groves was from the uh, uh, Assemblies of God of Great Britain. I had met him when he was almost 90 years old, like in the early 80s. If he was alive today, he'd be 130 years old. And, and he, I mean, he knew Smith Wigglesworth and Howard Carter. He went to Howard Carter's Bible School in Hampstead, England. He knew Stanley Howard Frodsham. And I mean, he knew all these legendary Pentecostals. And so he, and, and I'll never forget, I was sitting next to him, opposite him, drinking uh, tea, you know, he was English, and so he leaned over to me, and with his long bony finger, he put his finger on my face, and I, I remember he said, brother, when you don't know what to do, remember that the Holy Ghost always knows. And suddenly I see his face, and him like pointing at me, you know. So I, I said, okay, the Holy Ghost, you know what to do, I don't know what to do, so how do I connect with the Holy Ghost at that time? So I did what I knew what to do. That was all I needed to do. So I took the microphone to my mouth and I shouted into the microphone. I said, My interpreter said, what was that pastor? I said, I don't have the foggiest idea. But just stay with me. And then I launched into praying in tongues. My whole thought was, I'm going to shout in tongues until something happens. I'm going to shout. I don't care how long it takes. I'm going to shout in other tongues because I know one thing I've learned that when we speak in tongues, something always happens. When we speak in tongues, it always moves the Spirit of God. When we speak in tongues, things begin to happen. So I, that's why every day I speak in tongues. I speak in tongues in the shower. I speak in tongues driving a car. When I'm by myself, you'll always see my lips moving. People sometimes wonder who I'm talking to. But I'm all, I always speak in tongues because I know when, I'm, when I, I don't know what to say, what to pray for, the Holy Ghost always knows. So I went, I went after about 20 minutes of this. I speak in tongues nonstop. I begin to feel like a heat rising up my legs. And then I saw, I realized that, you see, if you want to see a miracle, you got to pray yourself out of the ice box into the fire. You got to pray yourself out of a cold place to a hot place. You got to pray yourself out of defeat to victory. You got to pray yourself out of life to death. You got to pray the kind of prayer that generates some heat. That is the Pentecostal way of doing things. So I, I just kept on praying. After about 45 minutes, I heard a shout, Hallelujah! And I opened my eyes. It was the dead man. He had shot up from the floor and he was standing in front of me with his hands in the air and he was praising God. Hallelujah! You know, <laughs> that is all I needed. From there we went all over Burma. We held open air gospel crusades. In those subsequent years I saw at least four people raised up from the dead. We saw creative miracles God do. 
creating body parts. I remember this woman, uh, she came because somebody had shot an arrow that had pierced her eye and she had only one eye, an empty socket. I remember how God created an eye in that empty socket. We saw lame people walk, deaf mutes hear and speak. I mean, just all kinds of miracles. And the greatest thing was that we saw so many, so many people come to Jesus that we planted 178 churches in areas where people didn't know the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. And in Burma, you had all these insurgent groups fighting the government, and two of the largest insurgent groups, their generals came to my crusade, and they got saved. And, and you know, so, you know, I, today as I look back, I... One thing I still haven't learned is figure this out, how to raise the dead. I still couldn't write a book on it, but there are some things I did come away with. The one thing I learned is that Jesus Christ is still the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that it is not just a cliche, it is true. The Jesus who we read about in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he is still the same today. And whenever two or three of us are gathered together in his name, he's always there in the midst of them so we can experience the Gospel even in our day because Jesus Christ is the same today. The second thing I've learned is that the Holy Ghost that came on the day of Pentecost is still here today. We don't have an imitation Holy Ghost, but the same Holy Ghost, that same fire that came down on the day of Pentecost is still here today. Hallelujah. Amen. That's why Paul said to Timothy, you must nurture and fan into flame that which was given to you through the laying on of hands. That Holy Ghost is still alive. We used to sing an old song. It went, it's the Holy Ghost and fire that is keeping me alive. I don't know you guys if you know that song, but we used to sing songs like that. The Holy Ghost and fire still here. Same Holy Ghost that came on the day of Pentecost. The third thing I've learned is that you see this book, the Bible, it is still the word of God. This is the word that God spoke when he created the heavens and the earth into existence. This is the word with which he upholds and sustains all things. And this is the word that has been given to us. And if you look at the history of the church, there's thousands of people who have died to preserve the purity and integrity of this book so that you and I can read it. And the life of God is in every word of this book. The fourth thing I've learned is that when we preached, when we preached the gospel, and I don't mean a modern day, seeker-friendly, whitewashed gospel, but when we preach the bloody, gory, glorious blood of the cross and the blood of Jesus and how he was whipped and 
bruised and beaten how they crowned him with thorns and they mocked him and they cursed him and spat upon him and how covered with blood and covered with the spit of sinners they nailed him to the cross and he hung upon the cross and you and I point to that cross and we tell people that upon that cross and at that whipping post he bore all of our sins and he carried all our diseases and infirmities and by his stripes we are healed and by his blood our sins are washed away that gospel God still confirms it with signs following that gospel still brings conviction to sinners and they come to the cross there is no other gospel that will get the job done hallelujah the same Jesus the same Holy Ghost the same word the same gospel and then there's a fifth thing I learned that even today when imperfect vessels like you and me are full of the Holy Ghost walking with Jesus preaching the word God will use us as he used the people we read about in the days of the Bible that is one of the privileges and the rewards of being a servant of the Most High God. Hallelujah. Paul's talked about the glorious gospel that had been entrusted to him, that God had committed to him. God has committed to us this glorious gospel of the living Christ. Hallelujah. Amen. Praise God. Let's bow our heads together.